We've been working through Philippians for a number of weeks. If you've been around, you'll know. Um, We've we been doing an amazing series on Philippians, um, just working through the book. Um, but we're going to take a break from that for a while, um, and we're actually going to pick it up again a little bit later in the year. Um, so that mean, meant for the first time, and I can't remember how long, um, I actually didn't have a, a preaching brief to preach from, because normally, you know, we, as a preaching team, we'll gather at the beginning of every series, and we get given a brief with the topics and just an outline of, of what we're needing to aim for. Um, and, and it was quite a, quite a weird feeling, because it's like, wow, what happens if God doesn't speak to me and I don't know what to preach to you guys? <laughs> it's quite a vulnerable, vulnerable feeling. But anyway, um, I, I felt that God um, wanted, us to, wanted me to preach from the Psalms this morning. Um, and it's a book of the Bible that I love deeply, um, but there's 150 of them. So where, where to start? Um, and so God is just so faithful to hear and answer our prayers. So literally the day I prayed and I was like, Lord, what, what should I preach on? I woke up the next morning with a verse on my heart and it was, um, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. And I couldn't remember where it was, but I, I knew it was in the Psalms and eventually found it in Psalm 27. And I read the Psalm again and I was like, okay, yes, that's, that's what I'm preaching on this morning. So the Psalms are exquisite in their beauty and their instructiveness to teach us how to pray and to engage God in truth. Through every season of the soul, they are thoroughly God-honoring and wonderfully real. Describing the wrestlings of the soul as we struggle with the messiness of life and how to still walk in relationship with God in the midst of a fallen, broken world. So let's read Psalm 27 together and then uh, we'll begin to unpack it. If you have your Bibles here, otherwise it will be up on the screen. Psalm 27 of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my mother, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. 
Wait for the Lord. So the first thing we see here is that it was a psalm of David. Who was David? Many of you will know he was the great king of Israel who united the kingdom and subdued the enemies, the nations surrounding Israel, thereby ushering in Israel's golden age, what was known as the golden age of Israel. He was a shepherd, a warrior, a fugitive, a tender lover, anointed and skilled king, a worship leader. The religious organization, much of it, um, which was to enrich the later temple worship, was owed to David's arrangements, which he made for the service of the tabernacle. He was called a man after God's own heart and God's covenant partner. He was a fallible sinner, just like you and I. He was an inspired writer of scripture. He wrote 73 or 73 of the Psalms, which is the prayer book of the church, are recorded as, as David's. He was a passionate worshiper of Yahweh. He was a forefather and foreshadower of the Messianic King, Jesus Christ, who was referred to a number of times in the Gospels as the son of David. And so you'll agree with me, he was a most interesting character. But let's work through his writing here in Psalm 27. First verse, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And I love that he begins with the Lord. He begins with the Lord is Yahweh. He fixates on the name of the living God. I am that I am. And then he focuses in on an aspect of God's character, which informs how he as a child of God responds to the situations and realities he's encountering. And these include, as we see, attacks, adversaries, pressing in all around him, war, trouble, loneliness, enemies within and without. And we know from the record of David's life in, in 1 and 2 Samuel that despite all he encountered, the multiple and varied and relentless stresses and pressures that David faced, even those brought upon him by his own sin, that David knew how to strengthen himself in the Lord. And so what are the aspects of God that he has encountered and experienced and of which he here needs to remind himself? Firstly, the Lord is my light. Light illuminates, it dispels darkness, it makes clear, it reveals the way that we need to go. The word of God brings light. When God said, let there be light, there was light. The word of God is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. Jesus is referred to as the light of the world. In Luke 1 verse 78 and 79, it says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That was a prophecy spoken about Jesus. Note here that David knows God as personal and real. David does not call him the light. Or light, but he says, my light and my salvation. He's the infinite God, but he's also personal. He's the God who sees us and engages with us in living relationship. He's the God who reveals his love to us in Jesus Christ, penetrating into lives darkened by sin and completely changing their character and nature, revealing the image of God that was always there but was obscured and covered by sin. The Lord is my light. Secondly, the Lord is my salvation. 
He is the saving God. His name is synonymous with deliverance, with salvation, with rescue. He is the God who is active in salvation history. He is the God who intervenes over and over again in the story of his people. First Israel and now the church. God is the author of salvation. The great deliverer from factors that constrain and confine us. Whether disease or enemies or trouble or sin or death itself. Throughout Scripture, God uses human agents to bring salvation to His people at particular historical junctures. Think of Moses, Joshua, Esther, David. But here David himself, one of the human agents used in bringing salvation, says, God is the one who is saving. He himself saves and He is my Savior. And not only does God's salvation entail deliverance from sin and its consequences, but it also includes the bestowing of every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1. It involves the gift of the Holy Spirit and the promise of the life of blessedness in the future age. And so when we unpack that word to save, what does it mean? It means to deliver or protect, either literally or figuratively. To heal, preserve, save, do well, and to be or make whole. So I want to ask you this morning, what do you need saving from? Do you even know? Have you come to the place where you realize that you were drowning, starved and deprived of the very oxygen you need to continue living, unable to do anything for yourself or help yourself, And that for you, there is no hope unless someone reaches down a strong arm and grabs you, plucks you out of the waters, and drags you back to shore. You see, the problem that I have, the problem that we have, is that we don't like being helpless. We don't want to admit that we're all out of options. That there's nothing we can do for ourselves. Because it feels shameful and embarrassing to admit, especially in a culture where the very air that we breathe is that of self-sufficiency, individualism, and cynicism. If you want a job done, do it properly, do it yourself, we all believe. And that is the enemy, it is the antithesis of trust. See, we have not seen the real depth of our need, and so we think we can strap on a band-aid to our shattered, broken leg and carry on limping on. And so we strap on religion, we strap on money, We strap on success, we strap on sexual prowess, we strap on physical beauty, not realizing that it all feeds into our sense of independence, our basic rebellion which is at the root of all our problems. See, you and I were never created to live independent of God. We cannot flourish like that. Even Jesus, especially Jesus, the God-man, who surely (laughs) the most whole most perfect human being that ever walked this earth did nothing, nothing apart from his Father. His greatest joy is rooted in his union with and communion with his dad. And he unashamedly lives in utter dependence on him. It's inconceivable to Jesus that he should do anything apart from his Father. I'm busy listening to a book called The Praying Life by Paul Miller. Incredible book. Really encourage you to read it on prayer. And he gives this illustration. He says, if you ask Jesus how he, how he is doing, he would answer, the Father and I are doing great. But if you then said, 
forget the father for a moment. How are you, Jesus? He would just look at you blankly. He wouldn't be able to process that question. It would make no sense to him because the thought of independence from his father is foreign. It's unthinkable. It's inconceivable. And so if that is the case for Jesus, the greatest man who ever lived, how much more do we need to live in dependence on God? He is our salvation. Thirdly, we see that the Lord is the stronghold of my life. What's the stronghold of your life? What's the source of your strength, wealth, well-being, vitality, joy, and security? And interestingly, David links this to fear. What do you fear? Because our deepest fears often give us a pretty clear idea of where our security actually lies. So if your ultimate stronghold is wealth, your fear, poverty, loss, and lack, losing control, If your stronghold is people's opinion of you and man's affirmation, you will fear their criticism and judgment and be vulnerable to the self-inflating effects of their praise. If your stronghold is intellectual accomplishment, you'll fear not being in control, losing the argument. You'll fear uncertainty and mystery. If your stronghold is achievement or success, you'll fear failure and you'll either exhaust yourself and burn out Or you will fail in multiple other areas of life just so that you can excel in one area. Normally it's work and then you fail in the areas of family and all the other areas that that make up our lives. Something like two-thirds of Americans are on antidepressants. This is symptomatic of something. Our lives are enslaved to anxiety and fear and yet we still refuse to turn to God. Why are we so afraid to tell people that it's God who gets us through stuff? It's God alone who helps us to get up in the morning and face this messed up, frightening world with courage. How do we deal with our fears? Do we build higher walls, get ourselves a better alarm system, take out more insurance, isolate and insulate ourselves until we're barely alive? David had learned in his wilderness wanderings, in his hardships and privations, that there is only one stronghold that brings us into true true security, that delivers us over and over again from fear and anxiety, and that's relationship with God, our Creator and Source, our Father, Abba. As the writer John tells us, perfect love casts out all fear. In Matthew 10, verse 28, Jesus, speaking on fear, says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. If God is my stronghold, then there is no one on earth that you need to fear. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Verse 2. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Here's a picture, I don't know if it's in the slides. David was facing something like that, an army armed to the teeth with guns and knives. Well, they didn't have guns then, but bows and chariots and an army encamping in. Have you felt like that? 
Here David tells us what he's struggling with in this season of his life. He had very real arms-toting enemies coming for him. And we may not face actual physical armies, but how do we respond when the enemy comes rushing in like a flood? When our health comes under attack, our finances come under attack, our marriages come under pressure, our children come under attack, our livelihood and our work is threatened. Let's be honest, we live in scary times. If we have children, there is a great temptation to entertain fear and anxiety over their futures, over the effects of social media and technology in their lives and what that's doing to them, over the many temptations and dangers they face and will face that we're not even aware of yet. David knew what it was to be threatened, to face enemies and uncertainty. Even his very life was almost continually under threat. And yet, because he knew, both in truth and experience, that God himself was his stronghold, he had this amazing confidence that his enemies were the ones who would stumble and fall. Why? Because if we are in God, if our life is hidden with Christ in God, as Colossians 3 verse 3 tells us it is, then those who fight against us eventually find themselves fighting against God. And that is a battle that no one can win. And so knowing this, David says that his heart shall not fear because his heart had learned to rest in God no matter what was happening outwardly. Verse 4, one thing I have, have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. If you could ask the Lord for one thing, what would you ask? David knew what it was to have everything. He had conquests, riches, wives, success, glory, respect and admiration from others. But he knew how hollow it all is. And because he had lived, also lived outside the promised land, he had lived on the run, away from the people of God and the call of God. So his one request was this, Lord, let me dwell in your house all my days. Let me be near you, Lord. Let me fill my gaze with the only beauty that lasts and that truly satisfies. And let me have intimate fellowship with my God. Oh God, grant us the grace to realize that you are our goal and our great reward and to fix our hearts on things above. Verse 5, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent and he will lift me high upon a rock. As we've said, relationship with God is our great safeguard. Don't be arrogant and try to face trouble yourself. You're not that clever. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not that clever. What do we do when we see trouble coming? We tend to rush out and meet it. We tend to bring our swords and our guns and our knives to try and deal with the trouble. We throw our best resources at it. Not David, though he was a skilled warrior leader and governor, a man of incredible wisdom and resources who could turn a ragtag bunch of fugitives into a disciplined, powerful army. David had no confidence in his own ability to deal with trouble. He knew that human beings are fundamentally unreliable because we do not know and we do not see the whole picture. So what does David do when he sees trouble on the horizon? He prays that God will hide him in his shelter. 
He trusts God to conceal him under the cover of his tent. And when the floodwaters rise up, that he will lift David out of danger and set him high upon a rock. Echoes of the Lord's prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Remove us completely from it. I listened to a a preach by Andy Stanley a while back where he talks about this is one prayer that he and his wife have been praying for decades consistently, that God would help them to see trouble coming and hide them from it. Not help them face it, hide them from it. And there's great wisdom there. Verse 6, And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. David's confident expectation in God's deliverance grows as he preaches the truth to himself and he begins to worship and rejoice. The best thing we can do when life crowds in, when we're under pressure, when we don't know what to do anymore, is worship. It will be a sacrifice of praise because we won't feel like it. Because it will be costly. But still we bring our hearts to God and declare, Father, you are worthy. Father, I do not understand what is going on, but I worship you. I know that you are good. I trust you to subvert this evil and bring good out of it. Thank you that you are faithful. You have never left me. You have never failed me. You are the God of salvation. From you come deliverances from death. You hold my lot. You daily bear me up. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And we begin to worship our Father in the face of our trouble. Verse 7, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. This is wonderful. He is the God who is gracious to us. He hears when we cry to him and he answers us. Reminds me of Exodus 2, verse 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Whatever is causing you to groan right now in your life, the word of God gives us this wondrous assurance. God sees and God knows. God sees and God knows. And this is not just an Old Testament promise that was relevant to the people of Israel at that time. Listen to the words of Jesus himself in John 16, 26. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I'll ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Friends, we have direct access to the Father. He hears our cries and he responds. Then in verse 8, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. God tells us to seek his face. That means he actually wants us to do it. He's not content to be some distant, far-removed sovereign who keeps us at arm's length. doesn't exploit his power over us, keeping us down there. No, he invites us in to See someone's face is to be near them. He desires fellowship, intimacy, to be face to face with us. 
To seek God's face is to seek His presence. It is to look into His eyes and to see the fire of His holy love for us. To see His passionate tears of longing as He weeps over our distance and preoccupation. It is to take our eyes off ourselves, our sin, our unworthiness, our self-righteousness, and to look to the Father who is tenderly holding out a robe for our naked backs and a ring for our sullied hands. It is to see the gracious smile of the Father's favor over us again because of what Jesus has done for us. It is to have conversation with Him, to speak with Him, and to hear Him speak with us. When we get one-on-one with someone, something amazing happens. The rest of the world gets shut out for a moment, and they become large in our experience, and they dominate our view. We engage and we leave enlarged. We become like that which we most focus on. Looking on the face of God in worship and adoration transforms us into His image. Fear and worry are eclipsed by peace in His presence. Misery is replaced by joy. Cynicism is overtaken by wonder. Greed is transformed into contentment. Our dark places are made light when we fix our eyes on Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, Paul writes, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Beautiful. And then verse 9, David says, Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. It's a terrible thing when God hides his face from us. Ultimately, hell is the place where there is no longer any possibility of seeing the face of God. Listen to his language though. What does it draw your mind towards? It's Jesus on the cross. Where God the Father hid his face and turned away from his own beloved son so that Jesus cried out as he died, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A wonder of the gospel that God turned his face away from his son, his innocent son. Come near and seek his face. I never know what it is to be utterly forsaken by God. It's gospel. Sorry. (sighs) Sorry, I didn't plan this. Gospel is amazing, God. God turned his face away from his son so he could look on us. <laughs> to receive salvation, we must come with a contrite heart. We must come not with self-righteousness, but as little children. I'm going to cry my way through the rest of this preach. <laughs> Helpless, knowing that there is nothing in our hands. Knowing that we have nothing in ourselves that we can trust in. John Trapp says, God puts away many in anger for their supposed goodness. 
but not any at all for their confessed badness. Verse 10, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Those of us who are parents know that the love of a parent is naturally unconditional. It is virtually impossible to give up your children. There's that line, he has a face that only a mother could love. I'm sure you guys have watched you know, the TV show Idols, where these people would come in the first round and they, they would be so appallingly abysmal at singing and the judges sort of snickering and snorting would say, like, you know, who told you you could sing? And invariably they'd answer, my mother. <laughs> but here David says, there is a greater love still, that even if my mother or my father should cut me off and forsake me, the Lord will accept me. The Lord will take me in. I'm reminded of Hebrews 13 verse 5, for he has said, never will I leave you nor will I forsake you. Even in the moments when we have to go against the wishes and the will of those closest to us in this world, in order to be obedient to God, He is near, He is with us. Verse 11, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. How we need the Holy Spirit the present teacher and counselor, to teach us God's way. For we have many enemies who seek to make us stumble, both within and without. Our very culture is set up against faith in Christ. It's steeped in unbelief. And this should drive us to daily and desperate dependence on the Holy Spirit to lead us in our decisions. We can't do it without Him. Verse 12, Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. What strikes me in this verse is that David doesn't retaliate against his enemies. Instead, he talks to God about them. David's a man of action. He's perfectly capable of retaliating, of fighting back, but he doesn't. He talks to God about his enemies. He knows that ultimately his life is in his father's hands. And so he prays, give me not up to the will of my adversaries. Father, intervene. Father, I trust you and I surrender to you. Such was the spirit of Jesus when he endured the lies and taunts of religious leaders, false witnesses, taunting crowds and mocking soldiers. As a sheep before its shearers, he was silent, uttering no word in his own defense. Verse 13, finally culminating, David says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. What a word. I believe that I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I remember a time in my life when I was so depressed and so discouraged, filled with such despair, and the Holy Spirit brought, brought these words to mind. And they gave me hope. They enabled me to carry on. When we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, when dark and brooding clouds surround us, we remember this. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He is good. The goodness of the Lord Psalm 23, David says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life.
taste and see that the Lord is good. If you struggle with this, consider Jesus. No greater despair has anyone ever known than our Lord and Messiah as he trudged toward the cross, toward certain horrible, painful death, toward the trial of unprecedented separation from the Father and the execution of judgment for our sin. And yet, here is the promise of God before him, enabling him to endure the cross, scorning its shame. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And though he died in agony and was taken down and placed in a tomb so final it seemed, yet his hope in the God who is able to raise the dead, in the God of resurrection, sustained our Lord on the cross. The very definition of hope is a confident expectation in God's goodness. And how that goodness was revealed and made manifest. When on the third day the power of God came upon his mortal flesh, filling his static lungs with motion and energy once more, charging his dead body with the miracle of life and death's hold was broken, he was raised. It is his example, it is his, his, his resurrection that enables us to wait for the Lord to be strong and let our hearts take courage and wait for the sure and certain deliverance of the Lord, our light and our salvation. I end with this from Romans 15 verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And I'll ask the band to please come up. We're going to worship in a moment. I just want to pray. Father, this morning we want to respond to your call to seek your face. With David, we want to say, your face, Lord, I will seek. Father, our hearts leap. When we hear of you, when we hear of the kind of father that you are and the love that you have for us, our hearts leap to respond to you, God. Thank you, Father, that you call us to come as we are, Lord God, not putting on some kind of show, Lord God, not putting on religious airs and graces, God, but as children, having nothing in our hands, coming to our Father, gazing into your eyes, seeing and experiencing your goodness, hearing you speak your love over us, and in response, declaring our love to you, Father. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that because of what he did, we can worship you freely, without fear, shame, or condemnation, God. That there is not one person in this room this morning, God. Not one person in our lives who could not come to you because of what they'd done or how they'd failed. But because of what Jesus has done, we can come to you. No holds barred, no barriers. Father, I thank you that to look upon you is to be transformed. We cannot stay the same when we gaze on you. And Lord, I pray that this morning as we worship you, you would transform us, Lord God, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Ben.